Welcome to GOB with Christy and Kathy, where we talk about writing, reading, and life in between. I'm Christy in South Florida. I'm Kathy in South Dakota. We're two newbie writers who share our love of food, wine, and crime fiction. We have interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors on our Corks and Conversation episodes. And don't forget our Words in Progress episodes where we have fun writing lessons with writing experts. Join us for today's episode. Welcome to Corks and Conversation with William Maz. Yes, his debut novel, The Mm -hmm. Bucharest Dossier. It's a historical spy thriller, but it is really timely, Kathy, for what's going on Mm -hmm. in the world now. So I I was excited to read this. Yeah, that that is for (laughs) sure. We have a lot to talk about, but first let me tell you a little bit more about William. He was born in Bucharest, Romania, and emigrated to the U.S. as a child. He is a graduate of Harvard University, Mount Sinai uh, Medical School, and then he did a residency in anesthesia at Yale. Um, He practiced medicine, and during that time, he continued writing and developing a passion for writing. Then he went on to study writing. He studied at Harvard, the New School, and the Writer's Studio in New York City, among other things I read. And he's now writing full time. So, William, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we're excited to t- talk about the book, obviously, and um, all things spies. Yes. But first, <laughs> obviously, we need to discuss or taste the wine. So, mm-hmm. William chose Mayomi Pinot Noir. Do, uh, are you joining us today? Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's say, should we say cheers to you in your debut? Your, yeah, awesome. Thank you very much. Thank it's, you. It's Yes. And I mean, did you see, Kathy, that Lee Child has his yes. own thing right at the top of the book? So you can't get much better than that. No. Lee Child says, very impressive and very recommended. Now that is an endorsement you can be proud of, I would think. But you're pretty thank you (laughs) and um so anyway this wine what do you guys think oh it's nice yes it's um it's according to the winemaker um the california coast is one of the best wine growing areas for pinot noir which i think they made a movie about that or something but (laughs) i i I like it it's very it's very jammy it's boysenberry Mm -hmm. blackberry but there's still my heart you know, loves the mocha. So there's still a little <laughs> mocha undertone. So we're going to enjoy that today. <laughs> yeah, good choice, William. I like this a lot. Thank you. That's great. Do you drink yeah. this a lot? Um, my wife and I both like it. The truth is, I don't drink a lot of wine. And what I've found over the years is that um, the tannins uh, put me to sleep, make me sleep. Oh, that's so, not good. <laughs> uh, Pinot Noir has the least amount, at least from what I've been told. So mm-hmm. if I will drink something, I'll drink Pinot Noir, but we don't usually um, drink. So my wife will go under the table with a half a glass of champagne. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we're going to be very careful and just sip. We don't want you to Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the end, the end of the, by the end of the episode, he's like, uh, can, uh, I <laughs> no, I'm not like that. I mean, if I want to have a drink, I'll have a scotch or okay okay <laughs> or vodka but anyway well like the black label in the book or whatever mm-hmm. the johnny walker black label. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah, I have a good story about that. So, (laughs) (laughs) oh, yeah, what what about it? You can go ahead and we can jump right in right now. Well, I was in Bucharest during the 80s, and my cousin is a a well known actress there. And part of that scene that I have in the book, in which um, Bill Heflin, my hero, meets a famous actor. his real name is uh, Radu Beligan. He's like the Laurence Olivier of... of oh. No, I mean, he's dead now, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so I think it's Laurence Olivier. So. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yes, so he was very famous. And um, I asked Irina, what should I bring to the party? And she says, Johnny Walker Black, but you have to go to the tourist shops to get it because you can't get it anywhere. The tourist shops were these um, places that Ceausescu had uh, created for tourists so that they would spend dollars Mm. because he was hungry for dollars. Mm -hmm. So I went there and I found Johnny Walker Black and I bought two bottles and I was the life of the party. (laughs) (laughs) But you were. So I decided to use it as a theme in the book. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was throughout. <laughs> okay, so let's give everybody a little idea um, of the synopsis here of this book so everybody knows. So um, this is a it's, a, it's a spy thriller. It's historical. It is a love story. There's all of that there. Um, but really, it starts, um, it's in Romania, 1989, um, is where the dominant part of the book takes place. But it starts with your, um, as you said, your main character, Bill Heflin, who's a CIA analyst, but he's also a a Romanian expat. He kind of took on an American identity, but really still has love, great love for his um, home country. He ends up having to go back to um, Bucharest um, because an asset, he is the only CIA analyst that has its own asset, um, code name Boris, which just was my favorite part of this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, it has to be Boris. <laughs> um, and as as he goes back, he gets embroiled in this uprising. That's a historical, um, ac- uh, you know, historical fact, um, a, a revolution. And then nothing, as spy novels want you to get sucked in, right? Nothing is as it seems. At the same time, he's searching for his childhood love that has got to these mythic proportions in his mind. Um, and so he's dealing with all kinds of different things. What's really going on? What's the CIA's role? Who is Boris? Why is Boris pulling the strings of his life? All good stuff. So if you like like John Le Carre or Daniel Silva, I think this is the novel for you. So there's that. So, okay, here's my first question. So, like I said, it is a spy thriller, very traditional spy thriller. It is a historical fiction. It is a love story. And I was wondering which one of those three came to you first when you were coming up with this plot? Well, that's very interesting because my first novel was when I was a um, medical student, I wrote, and it was purely about Pusha was this girl that existed in my uh, life when I was a kid. And I loved the character. I came to uh, America when I was eight. And um, yeah, for for decades, I was thinking about Pusha. That part is true. Oh, interesting. Uh, I love that. Not not the rest of it, but that part. (laughs) (laughs) 
and it almost got bought. I had an agent um, uh, and uh, Knopf almost bought it, but they didn't like the psychological. It was a psychological novel and my first. So I wasn't able to sell it, but I used uh, that part, um, which was personal, um, as the anchor to the book. And then I decided, well, how am I going to use this? I'm not going to write a psychological novel. I'm going to write something else. And so then I um, started doing reading and research and into the revolution of 1989 uh, in Romania. And I realized I needed to write a spy novel. I love mm. spy novels. And I had written two other novels in the meantime, still unpublished, but hopefully they will be, that were um, uh, medical thrillers, Michael Crichton type of medical. Oh, thrillers. love that. But, but not um, like in a hospital. They were like scientific thrillers. One was about, you know, what would happen if the government found out that a scientist discovered the cure for aging? What would they do? Uh, they make it well, you're going to have to write that again or, or edit it and get it out because that sounds it's good. Ready. It's ready. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so anyway, so then I started writing the thriller and then I, you know, one thing led to another. The revolution, once I got into researching it, and then I remembered all the things. Um, mm -hmm. You have to remember that during the 70s and 80s, I went back to Romania probably about a dozen times to visit oh, relatives wow. and so forth. So I, and I stayed extended periods of times. So one, one year I stayed a whole summer. And so I knew the whole atmosphere. I knew um, what the people were going through, uh, the whole securitate um, situation. Mm being followed all the time and so forth. So I, I wanted to bring all of that into the book to provide the atmosphere and to really make, you know, Americans um, realize what that kind of totalitarian regime does and what, it, what, what living under it means. Um, so that's how I brought all the aspects together. Wow. And the tough part was of course, uh, intertwining them. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, which you did beautifully. Th this is such a timely topic. And I'm sure when, obviously when you're writing this, you obviously know this, but for right now, you know, readers who are trying to make sense of what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and what it's like for the Ukrainians, this is a, this is a very timely book because you really explain in all kinds of ways about what it is like to live under communist rule. I mean, do you think there's some takeaways that, that current readers oh, apply absolutely. to the current situation? Yeah. Absolutely. And I want to make one thing clear. I did not call Putin and tell him. <laughs> <laughs> I have a book coming out and I would yes. like you. <laughs> uh, so I plead the fifth on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's a tragic thing and we shouldn't, um, we no. shouldn't. About it. But it. I, I come from I come from the operating room where we use jokes to uh, take away the tension uh, while you're doing brain yes. surgery or something. So so uh, yes, what you're having now and what you've had for the past 22 years, Putin's in power has been getting uh, more and more power in order to make it into a uh, totalitarian regime that he's missing that he missed. Uh, the good old Soviet days in which mm -hmm. everything was centralized, the police, the secret police, KGB was all powerful. 
people had no sources of outside uh, information other than the propaganda that they were getting from the government. And he's getting wealthy beyond belief. They thought he is, they think he is the richest man on the planet at this point, probably around $500 billion. Because in order to sort a business there, you have to give him a percentage of the business. You have to give him personally a percentage? Personally. personally. Oh my Never mind gosh. other people. But Putin gets a percentage? Like all these oligarchs, they literally have to give him a percentage of their wealth? First of all, the oligarchs were put in there by him. So they didn't create their own billions. They were old KGB pals, most of them. <laughs> and he needed people around him to make sure he's got the power. So he put them all in positions of power. They made him heads of petroleum companies, Gazprom, and they made him heads of banks and uh, departments in the government and so forth. So he made them wealthy. Of course, part of that wealth that comes from each one of these companies goes to him personally, to Putin. And he's got you know, offshore accounts everywhere, but nobody can trace them because they're not in his name. They're in his friends' names, his you know, relatives' names or whatever. <laughs> the point about totalitarian regimes is the propaganda that keeps the population dormant, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Romania, I mean, this is all from the playbook of the communists. In Romania, in those uh, days, there were only two hours of television um, a day in the evening. And all of it was uh, filled with propaganda showing Ceausescu going to a factory and declaring, you know, the great progress of um, socialism. Of course, they called it socialism. They mixed uh, socialism and communism because they didn't want to scare the West. So they wanted to associate themselves with like social Democrats in Germany, those parties, which are nothing like what he was doing. Um, But he wanted to make communism sound a little tamer than it was. But he was a Stalinist. Mm. And I could go into the whole history of it. um, And but life under that kind of Stalinist regime was, uh, was horrible from many points of view, both in terms of the secret police and in terms of the starvation that was going on at the time, which, you know, I can go into whenever you want. I, you know what, it's, it's amazing to me and embarrassing that, you know, I was around during that time period and had no idea, had no idea what was going on. You know, and I, I, I want to say like 89, I, I was just graduated college and then I was a flight attendant, international flight attendant. And I still didn't really, you know, we just lived our lives. We didn't understand that what was going on to that extent, you know? And so I wonder how it's going to be different this time around, although, you know, cause the media is so strong. Well, don't feel bad. Um, <laughs> our presidents didn't know what was going on. So let me tell you a little story. Uh, during the early 70s, Ceausescu decided that he needed money to expand his, um, his economy because it was starving, right? So he decided he was going to put a different face on his foreign affairs to appear like he is independent of the Soviet Union, that he is a 
reasonable fellow that he wants to be friends with the West. And the West bought it. They feted him. Um, actually, Nixon came to Bucharest in 68. Uh, and then he was uh, at one point uh, uh, with Carter. Um, he wanted to project that kind of independent and different type of Soviet leader, uh, or I should say uh, communist leader. Uh, in the meantime, his whole internal policy was stricter than Russia's or Czechoslovakia's or Germany's, but the West bought it and they started giving him uh, loans from Western banks and so forth. Eventually he got about $10 billion worth of loans and he invested them in all sorts of projects that never quite worked out, of course. He, he made a uh, petroleum uh, refining uh, plant cost billions that um, never got the oil from Iran that he thought he would be getting to refine and so forth. And he used some of it to build his big palace, um, which I mentioned in the book. Mm -hmm. It is the largest government building uh, next to the Pentagon. So it's second largest in the world. That's amazing. <laughs> it's, hard. it's honestly hard to get your brain around that. I mean, that's yeah. hard to even understand that as, I mean, I, mean, yeah. I know you yeah, but it's like, what? Crazy. It even had an underground bunker for radioactive uh, protection because he thought, you know, in case of a nuclear attack, he wanted to <laughs> Anyway, so, oh. he bought, so in the 80s, after he lost all that money, he decided he needed to pay it all back. And the only thing he had to sell, because Romania didn't make anything, none of the communist countries made anything that could be mm -hmm. sold in the West because all their products were, um, weren't any good. He, he had to sell grain, grain and uh, um, natural minerals. The, po the population starved. It got so bad that the peasants were actually creating the grain got the least of it. Most of it went to the cities that was left behind that they, he didn't sell. And uh, the peasants uh, were relegated to giving their kids whatever food they had and, and boiling grasses and roots in order to make a soup out of it to survive. Mm. They tried to get on trains to go to Bucharest to get bread. <laughs> and Ceausescu uh, found out about it and he instigated, he started a, a uh, internal visa system that prevented them from getting on the trains. Oh my <laughs> gosh. So they starved. <sighs> and even in Bucharest, um, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing lines of 100, 150 people standing to buy bread or milk or eggs or wow. shoes or whatever um, it was. And I describe a little bit in the book. Mm -hmm. Many times, yeah. Don't worry. Book. It's the book is not like wallowing in this, but it no, does no, no, show no. it. And, oh, yeah. and but there's still all the spy stuff. That's right. <laughs> and, and you know, you always are going to root for the good guys and stuff like that. So, Christy, do you think we should get into our question in the bottom? Oh, yep. Sure. Okay. Uh -oh. So this is the time we ask the authors we get to talk to. A question that a random question that you might get at the at the to the bottom of the bottle. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid random. Of okay. okay. If you were stranded on a remote island for a year, what oh. one outfit would you bring? <laughs> outfit? Yes. Oh God. Well, this says a lot because well, let's hear what his answer is. Okay. What would you Wait bring? a minute. Is it a tropical island or is that's it your choice? See, that's where oh. I think it could be. 
it's a tropical island. I love the beach. Uh, so what would I need on a tropical island? The only thing I would need is sunscreen and a big hat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're stranded there by yourself, like, do you even really need clothes? That's, well, that's the question. That's why I said the hat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would see, add mosquito repellent I to that. Say, I thought okay. bugs. Yeah. <laughs> like a full, full, like sunscreen bug suit is what I would like. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I would go with, with William's answer, but Kathy, I think you would have a different answer because I think you would pick a Northern Island, wouldn't you? I, you know, I do love a tropical island, but I, I do also, we're um, this summer going to one of our favorite spots, which is the San Juan Islands north of Seattle, north and west of Seattle. And I, so you need more than probably just a half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This gets very complex, Christy. I don't. <laughs> okay. All right. That was good. All right. I'm having a sip yeah. and let's go on to okay. our second half of questions here. If you're like us and enjoy a glass of wine, nakedwines.com should be your next online stop. You don't have to get naked but you can get six bottles of wine, red, white, or a mix for only $34.99 plus free shipping. That's a savings of $90. Or you could get naked. Either way, <laughs> go to our website, gameofbookspodcast.com for a coupon code. It's that easy. No commitments, no membership fees, just wine shipped to you direct from independent winemakers with 100% refund guarantee. Go to gameofbookspodcast.com for the coupon code. So we are very curious as well about your transition from medicine to writing spy novels <laughs> and, um, and now doing it full time. So can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Sure. Well, um, I've always been a writer. I started writing when I was in seventh grade, I remember, Mrs. Garbutt's English class. No. <laughs> uh, she had us write short stories. And my first one was about three little chicks, chickens that my um, mother got me when we were in the refugee camp in, in Greece. Oh, wow. Oh. We, we stayed there two and a half years, unlike the off the um, character who stayed only one year. But uh, in these barracks, but she wanted me to have some pets. So she got me these chicks, which unfortunately did not survive because it was too cold for them. They needed, and I was putting a light bulb next to them to keep them warm and everything else. So I wrote a short story about that. <laughs> and then she had me read it in class and they loved it. And I got hooked. And I love language. Uh, I love writing. I love every part. I love mm. rewriting. I love looking at a sentence and trying to figure out a better way of saying it. Ugh. And the, I mean, I've been uh, tinkering with the sequel to this, which is basically done uh, for like the past month, because every time I read it, I go, no, I think this word should be this. <laughs> That's a hard thing to decide when to just be like, okay, I have to stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, how so, many languages do you speak um, or speak, write in? Three fluently <laughs> and Greek, Romanian, and English. And, um, you know, I took five years of French in high school. But, you know, you can't learn a language unless you live there. For a period. Right. So right. I can read it, but, you know, I can't speak it, really. But your preferred writing is in English. 
Oh, I came when I was eight. So um, that was the main formative writing period. Yeah. Yeah. And I never went to school when I was in Rainey. I left when I was six. So I went to first and second grade in Greece, actually. So my reading and writing of Romanian is not very good um, because I self-taught. Yeah. But my speaking is fine. My um, accent, you know, is pretty native. So whenever I go there, they take me for a native. I like that about your character in the book, too. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, we, we read off all of your um, uh, medical training, but we also talked about your vigorous writing um, training. You, you really like education, it seems like. And you, you know, you trained, you went to a lot of really prestigious writing programs and I have a question. I want to know if you were if you were teaching other writers, what would be your top three tips that you would want them to take away? Okay. Well, first of all, I would tell them not to go to writing classes. <laughs> <laughs> well, because um, after you've learned a few things, they become relatively useless. Because think about what a writing class uh, looks like. It's a group of six or 10 students with a writer as a teacher. And everybody writes something every week and they come to class to read it out loud and then they get criticized by the students. I mean, to me, the students don't know any more than I do. (laughs) Right. Right? So why are you listening to them? (laughs) Yeah. And the teacher doesn't have time to read like uh, all of these short, 10 short stories and so forth. He's got his own writing to do. So he might mm-hmm. say a word or two, but there's no like line by line or paragraph by paragraph analysis of the book or of the story or whatever. And so they become relatively, you know, um, discussions between people who don't know anything uh, about oh, somebody, somebody's writing, you know. So once you go to a few of them, stop going. What you need, what you need if you have some money is write a novel and then have an editor, a well-known mm. editor. You got to hire them and they will go paragraph by paragraph and let you see where, where you went wrong and so forth. To me, that was the most useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing is rewrite. You know, um, a lot of the stuff you write on the first time around gets thrown out. It's no good. And you listen to all the famous writers and they tell you the same thing. Yeah. Uh, if I were to publish my first version, uh, I would be a hack. You know, you, yeah. you go mm-hmm. back and you go back. And the way I write, so there are two different uh, extremes. There are those who outline the plot and everything, which I don't do. And there are those who have absolutely no idea what they're going to write about. And they just start writing. Well, I'm not that either. So I'm somewhere in between, like a lot of writers are, where I have some idea of, of what I'm going to talk about, where I'm going. Mm-hmm. I make notes. I have books of notes. And then I slowly start writing to find out exactly what I'm writing about, because I find all sorts of connections between characters, between scenes, between plot lines as I'm writing. Oh, and that's the fun, fun part, isn't it? That is mm-hmm. the fun part. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you have these other writers who outline the whole thing and then they just fill in the blanks almost. That's no fun for me, you know? Yeah. So that's how I write. Um, 
And I love it. I mean, I, I just discovered something today that I added another scene in there because I go, oh my God, this would be great, you know? And so mm. it's never done. That's great. You got to love what you do. You know, yeah. if you don't love it, don't do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Seeing, seeing, I mean, when you say that you can see the joy in your face, which is pretty, pretty awesome. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious also, you know, you mentioned you've written a few other novels that didn't, didn't get published, which clearly should, because the pitch for that one was yeah. really good about the aging. I'm just saying. Yeah. Really saying. But, <laughs> but um, what, how has your um, experience as a debut novelist been versus your expectations of what it would be like? Oh boy. It has happened really fast. Uh, I have a, uh, I hired a PR agency, Merrill Moss Media, and they have been incredible. Every day or every other day, I have an event of some sort, some live, some on, some in person, some Zooms, some podcasts, and um, it's been a whirlwind. Um, you know, so I you would recommend that uh, you know debut novelists try to work with a, pu a publicist or. I would, but they're expensive. So that's mm -hmm. the problem. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. if, you'd better be knowledgeable about social media. But the thing is, you know, if you're alone, I mean, how do we, how do you even get, uh, you know, a, an event with you? I mean, what, are they mm -hmm. going to call and say hi, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or we're, we're see you at a, at the bar. No, yeah, I'm just right. kidding. <laughs> No, yeah, but we, yeah. you know, we do, we do see people, you know, at conferences and things too, that we meet people, yeah. but yeah, the publicists are the best way to. By and large, most of our, um, most of our episodes are booked through publicists or um, some of the publishing houses, you know, will um, have their own public in-house publicists that reach out to us, but, um, and we do have authors that reach out for sure. Or we're just, we just meet somebody and we're like, yeah, be great. Or sometimes, yeah, I'll so say to Christy, we, like, we happen to be yeah. up there in New York and we're like, okay, you know, having a glass yeah. of wine or a scotch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it is, it's, it's, it's interesting because I love hearing about all the things that you don't anticipate happening um, versus what you expected would happen. I just think it's a fascinating period of time. Your first, you know, big book birthday and, yeah. Um, and, and I thought I would be nervous. I thought I'd be nervous talking to people, but I, um, I found out I love it. Oh, and yes. Well, you're so knowledgeable so, on your topic, yeah, so, too. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you could be a podcaster. <laughs> a spy Just add that. thriller podcast. <laughs> I used to do acting when I was in college, so maybe that's got something to do with it. <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably does. <laughs> Well, this has been so fun. Christy has a final question for you. Oh, uh -huh. yes. Okay. Yes. So we ask this of all our authors, um, you know, to appease our foodies out there, our mysterious foodies. Which of your characters would you like to share a meal with and what would it be? Oh, that's an easy one. It would be, oh. with, it would be with Boris. <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs> and I would have a borscht. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking. <laughs> okay, yeah. that's, that's awesome. Funny. Uh, yeah. Most people have to like him and ha. Huh? You're like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, along with what we just talked about, so when our listeners um, hear about you and they want to reach out, where's the best way to get a hold of you or find out more information? So you can go to williammaz.com. That's my website, and you can get everything you want from there. And you can sign up, uh, and I send out 
um, little essays every so often. So I signed up today, FYI, everyone, for the, for the newsletter. Well, you know, this has been so fun. We're so glad that you been. joined us. I mean, I feel like we could do a whole nother podcast talking more questions, but yeah. um, alas, we now we can just cheers your cheers. debut. Yes, cheers to you, William. Thanks so cheers. much. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Subscribe to our podcast on our website, gameofbookspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, you can give us a five-star rating or review. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can watch and listen. On gameofbookspodcast.com, you can find all the information about what we talked about on this episode. And you can sign up for our newsletter and enter our fun contests and giveaways. We also post our stories and links on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hope to see you there. I can guarantee you that we had fun today. And we hope you did too. Cheers.